the holy grail is knowing how to run without getting injured. Whether you're wearing shoes or going barefoot, I mean, that's really your goal is to enjoy going out, enjoy running, and not worry about being able to do it the next day. Well, we're going to be chatting with someone who has some interesting thoughts about that on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting with your feet first, those things that are your foundation. We're going to break down the propaganda, the mythology, the often lies that you may have been told about what it takes to run, to walk, to hike, to play, to lift, to do CrossFit, yoga, whatever it is you'd like to do, and do that enjoyably and efficiently and effectively. Uh, I'm Stephen Sashen from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the Movement Movement podcast. We call it the Movement Movement because we're creating a movement that involves you about movement, and that's about natural movement. We're trying to make natural movement or help people rediscover that natural movement is the obvious, better, healthy choice the way natural food is. If you like what you hear here, then go over to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. And to join the movement, all you have to do is enjoy what we do. Check out the previous episodes, like, share, comment, give us a thumbs up where you can do that, uh, hit the bell button on YouTube so you hear about upcoming episodes, you know how to be part of this. In fact, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's jump in. Peter Francis, hello. Hello. Um, now, I said, I, we started this conversation just a few minutes ago, and then we started it again right now. And when I started with Peter, I said that I was humiliated and embarrassed that it took me till now to discover him, you, uh, because you are a staunch proponent of barefoot things. And we just jumped into that conversation. I found out about you <clears throat> last week or so when there was an article that came out. Um, was it in the Telegraph or where was it? I can't remember. I think it's originally written on the conversation.com and then it, it's got picked up right. by a few other places like CNN and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Independent. <clears throat> so, and, and the gist of it and, and what the title was something along the lines were barefoot running cure your injuries. Um, pardon me for not being in any way prepared, but that's how I run my life. Uh, yeah. The media gave it various titles like that. Yeah. Yeah. So before we jump back into our conversation and, um, and then I will be asking you to give the tour of your man cave again, cause I love your new log cabin. Um, tell me who the hell you are, what the hell you're doing here before we get into how you got into this whole concept of natural movement. What are you up to now? Well, I guess, uh, I'm a, I'm a lecturer at, um, the Institute of Technology in, in Carlo, which is a place in Ireland. Um, I'm a sports scientist, a physical therapist, and I do research into foot development in both adolescents, children, adolescents, and adults who grow up with and without wearing shoes. So silly as this may sound, um, that means you have some actual expertise and not just opinions. Well, science is a humble pursuit, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny. When people um, talk to me about uh, the whole natural movement thing, they'll often say, well, there's a big controversy around this barefoot stuff. I go, no, no, no. There's a bunch of research demonstrating the value of natural movement, and there's a bunch of people with opinions. And that the, the two are, it, the Venn diagram does not overlap somewhere, um, which is always stunning for people here. Well, anyway, we were talking. So tell me, if you can, or start to repeat your story of how you discovered natural movement and barefoot running. Um, so I was a keen runner from the age of 16. Um, and a couple of years into that, I started to pick up a lot of injuries. Um, I was studying sports science at the time and I was mainly interested in performance at that time. I got so many injuries and then I, I graduated and I went to the Middle East and taught English for a year. And when I was out there, um, I couldn't access, uh, physio in the same way. And a friend of mine just happened to send me a, a magazine article and said, have you tried uh, this barefoot running? And I thought, well, what the hell? It can't hurt. So I found a grass park. I did two sessions of running and my plantar fasciitis, a painful heel condition, cleared up almost immediately. And when I came back to Ireland to do my PhD, I said to my professor, hey, this really weird thing happened to me in the Middle East and I want to do a study on it. And he kind of threw his eyes to heaven, as professors often do. But he did humor me and he, he said, well, let's get one of the undergraduate students to do a, a small research project in it first. And we did. And we found that runners without their shoes, we took the arm off, the, off a treadmill and we got some cameras around it. And we looked at runners running at two different speeds with and without their shoes. Um, and at the lower speed, the runners had a shorter stride, um, more flexed hip, knee and ankle. And that was kind of the beginning of 
I suppose, my career more in the research end of, of Barefoot. When was that? Uh, that was uh, 2010. Oh, so yeah, so you came in right as the boom was starting to boom. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, it didn't necessarily feel like that at the time, but I just uh, I stumbled upon it and um, I got some joy from it. And so I became interested in how it was all working, you know. Yeah, you and me both. I mean, I, I say it that way because 2000, we started Zero Shoes in late 2009. And from late 2009 to mid 2010, basically every major shoe company was putting out content articles, various things saying, you know, don't run barefoot. You're going to kill yourself and you're going to, uh, your mortgage rate's going to go up and you're going to step on hypodermic needles and you'll catch Ebola. And you know, it was just insane. And then of course, by the end of 2010, the shoe companies were coming out with shoes. They were calling barefoot or calling minimalist, which frankly were nothing of the sort, but they were trying to capitalize on it before uh, they found out or before everyone just, you know, bailed on them entirely. So that's why I say it was, you know, the beginning of the boom. And, and it was, that was also just that same era when Born to Run became popular as well. Was that, it, did you read Born to Run at that time? Was that in any way inspiring or was this all just based on your experience and going, I got to check this out? Uh, no, it was just based on my own experience. Yeah. Love yeah. it. So um, when you say you tested people at two different speeds, you mm-hmm. saw the, sh- and I'm putting air quotes around shorter stride length um, because that's massively misunderstood by people. But what were you, what did you see at the faster speed and what were the two speeds? I'm curious. So we saw no difference at the faster speed. Um, right. And I think that's because when you run faster, you, you tend to use good mechanics anyway. And I think I have a, a suspicion the problem of injury in long distance runners is, is actually in the, in the volume of low speed training. And so therefore, mechanical changes at that speed are probably most important in terms of Interesting. solving the problem. So yeah, we, we didn't see a change at the faster speed, but we did at the slower one. Yeah. Well, um, did, did you ever bump into Bill Sands? Do you know Bill? No. Bill was the head of biomechanics for the US Olympic Committee. He used to have a human performance lab at a university out here in Colorado. And I met him, must have been around that same time. Um, in fact, it was definitely right around that same time, late 2009-ish. And he, um, what he would do is he'd bring you in his lab. He had this five foot long, 10 foot or five foot wide, 10 foot long treadmill. He'd throw you on there at, and film you from the back and the side at 500 frames a second. And first he'd have you run in your favorite pair of shoes, then barefoot. And then it was like doing an eye chart or an eye test, you know, better, worse, better, worse with every other pair of shoes that you had. And in over 90% of the people, he found that at a normal training speed, uh, their, bio, their mechanics changed dramatically and improved dramatically when they were barefoot. And then so the question was, what shoes can you wear that's going to give you the closest thing to that experience? He never even suggested people run barefoot. It was just like, if you're going to run in shoes, let's see what we can do to be as close to something that we just demonstrated is better. And it was amazing the number of people who found those improvements, but still were like attached to wearing big, thick motion control shoes that he showed them didn't help them in any way. It was, it was a fascinating thing about people really being locked into an idea that they had somehow gotten married to despite the evidence in front of their face. Yeah. Cool. All right. Good enough response. (laughs) So, all right. So you did that bit of research you, and what happened next since that was now 10 years ago? Did that piece of research, finished my PhD, which was in um, an, an unrelated topic, and then started to engineer my work and research more towards running injury and, and barefoot. And so probably from around 2015, started to publish more and more in the barefoot and in the running injury um, space, which is which is what we do now still. Yeah. What, what kind of response are you Getting. Let me see if I can preface that that question after the fact. What's amazing to me, like I said, there's all this research on natural movement, and it seems to get a little press. B arguments from people who know nothing about what they're talking about. And I, there was a C when I started this thought. Um, uh, sometimes just you know vitriolic responses of people telling saying you know this is complete bullshit. But the the one that that amazes me of course, is that is simply how little response that a lot of this research gets, despite how profound it actually could and should be. What did you discover when you started publishing? Well, in science, you just got to do the studies and, and publish the work. So I, I can't say that I've had 
major trouble there. Um, I do try and write blog pieces and try and write media friendly pieces so that the information is communicated to wider audiences. And we've had su- some success in doing that. But, um, I think also it's, it's, um, it's complicated because, because I guess the, the, the traditional influencer has, has a, has a, an overly simplistic view, which means the advice from them is as likely to send you in the right direction as it is the wrong direction. And then you have a lot of scientists maybe who, who don't have real world experience and application of the information. And so there's a sweet spot in the middle because, you know, I'm working on a book at the moment about running injury. And yes, there's a chapter on shoes and there's a chapter on being barefoot, but there's a whole load of other stuff like, like not training, not changing your training load too quickly, not chasing um, previous versions of yourself or other people, um, learning to introduce variability into training, learning not to take what clinicians say to heart too much. Um, there's, <laughs> There's a whole lot, you know, uh, being less sedentary in, in daily life, you know, not getting bored and needing instant gratification. And th- there's a lot of stuff <laughs> that goes into why somebody gets injured. So it's probably when you look at it with a black and white lens that you start getting into trouble. And, and then you just get, I suppose, overly simplistic arguments over and back in the media. And then it, it, it probably doesn't go anywhere, you know. Well, a lot of that seems to be, you know, human beings, they want a simple answer. They want to know, you know, what's the step-by-step thing that I do independent of the of individual differences. Uh, it, it amazes me when I'll get an email from someone saying, you know, I want to run this marathon in two weeks barefoot. What do you think I should do? And I, of course, respond, don't run the marathon barefoot in two weeks. Um, so, and that's another part is people think that if they can imagine something then they should be able to do it the way they imagine it, which is, of course, not the case. With with all the things that you describe for all those different conditions that can be helpful, it made me think of Arthur Lydiard. Um, there's a, a great documentary that I don't know who did it about about Arthur. And for people who don't know, he was perhaps the most successful running coach of all time. He coached people from the 800 meters to the marathon, a lot of world champions and Olympic champions coming out of New Zealand, which is you know a tiny, tiny little country that I think you guys used to have some connection to. And... Um, and Lydiard did exactly everything you just said. I mean, the variability in what he was doing and how he did cross training and how he was, he did a lot of training barefoot. And of course he was making shoes for people that looked like ours. They were thin, they were flat, they were wide, they were lightweight. Um, he was a professional shoemaker. And, you know, when I'm hanging out at the university of Colorado, watching how they're training, it's just like pounding in the miles and seeing who survives uh, and, or I'll see some guys who have professional coaches and the amount of like strength training they do or, or anything else. It's so obvious that that's something that they're kind of giving lip service to even at the Olympic level, you know, these guys who, who are, I mean, sure they're great runners, but like can't do a push up for all practical purposes. And so I'm, I, I'm, I'm in, I love everything you said. I think that, you know, proposing that people adopt what you're suggesting is a Herculean task. How, how? What do you think it's going to take to, I don't know, expand people's mind to get people to think about moving differently, running differently, injuries differently, more than just having this resource that you're going to be putting out? Well, I think that's a big question. Um, but expanding people's mind is 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 perhaps what society is in need of right now. I think um, I think I can't remember the philosopher who said it, but. Uh, tyranny is the eradication of nuance, you know, and um, I think increasingly in all aspects of life, it's been turned into uh, black and white, you know, sort of ways of looking at things. And I think, you know, I guess if you if you look at things from an evolutionary perspective, you you then have to say, well, why are we obese? Why are we uh, suffering more anxiety and depression than ever? Why are we um, living in um, an environment where we're in chronic pain? Why are we so medicated? And on and on and on um, in terms of mismatched diseases. So if you, if you take that sort of evolutionary lens, you, you will start to say, well, okay, how do, we, how do we become more conditioned in a modern environment? So if, mm. if we are sitting on an iPad and not climbing a tree growing up, then, then we need to think about that in terms of, the, the knock-on effects, you know. So you mentioned my cabin. There's no chairs with any backs on 
in here and, and, and there's a standing desk and there's a sort of a shoes off. So, you know, you're constantly trying to steer yourself towards something that's a bit closer to your evolutionary legacy and, and, you know, eating well and exercising and all of that comes, it becomes important. But I guess with, with, with barefoot or not even barefoot running, but just running, if you're sat at an office desk all day long, you, you're really asking your body to go from zero to a hundred really quite quickly. And, and that body is not conditioned either. So those two things of kind of sudden change on a, on a frame that's not as, um, musculoskeletally robust as a hunter gatherers might have been is, is an issue. So I think to, to, to get people to expand their mind, you gotta, you gotta address it on a whole, uh, number of fronts, you know? Absolutely. Two things. One, to an earlier point you made, the, 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 there's tyranny within the barefoot community as well. And I think some of this is just people trying to establish themselves as a someone so they can make a living. So some of it is, you know, you have to run this way. There's some people who say you have to land on this part of your foot in the following way. And I'm not going to get into it because they'll, they'll basically be identifying who I'm talking about. But, but, or even just the ideas that have taken hold, like that the optimal cadence is 180 steps per minute. Or, I mean, just all these little things that people have tried to turn into, that they've tried to codify. And in, in ways, in, in doing that, they've really ossified, which is an amazing thing since this is such a new movement that there's so many ideas that have already become entrenched that, you know, we've got to, talk people out of. Um, so that's sort of part one. Part two, um, I, I obviously, and not surprisingly, agree with you about the mismatch between our evolutionary history and where we are now. The thing that I'm curious about, and I wonder, you kind of addressed this, but I want to highlight it, uh, is a point that I made on a, on a panel discussion. I said, look, there's no amount of ancestral movement or, or climbing trees or whatever that you can do that really replicates what we were doing as tribal society members where you have to walk to the river a thousand times to get enough rocks to build a shelter where you're chasing down food or being chased by things that think you're food. And the example I give, I say, look, as a, as a sprinter, I can tell you, I had a really hard workout on Sunday. I felt a little sore on Monday, but if I had a race where I worked out one tenth as much, but was much more intense because it was an actual race then I'd be sore till Thursday. And so there's just a hormonal thing that happens that's completely different under in the heat of competition than anything I can simulate when I'm training. So similarly, you know, whatever we're doing now is at best a simulation of our, our hunter gatherer history. How do you see that? Or, and how do you see any way of maybe getting those things a little closer together? Well, I think, the key thing you mentioned there is about <clears throat> repeatedly walking to to the river and gathering stones and so on. What what you see with that type of activity is it's a constant low level of conditioning. So I think that was probably how we spent the majority of our time. The other stuff about hunting and so on, but it was probably persistent hunting. So, you know, again, long periods of low level conditioning with short bursts of high intensity exercise so you're not really in a constant state of inflammation you're in a constant state of activity i mean the, the best example i've seen of it recently is my brother is a mechanic and, and also a guy who's interested in agriculture and so on and so sometimes if if i look out the kitchen window you know having a coffee when i watch him he's he's in and out of his garage he's up and down the stairs he, he carries this thing across to the compost heap and then he turns around and, you know, whatever, moves stone here and there. So I watched him one day and I thought, yeah, this guy doesn't need to exercise because he's, he's mimicking this constant upright posture where he's performing various activities repeatedly. So I, I do think it, 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 a modern version of it exists if you have a manual occupation. If you don't and you're trying to be an athlete, I think it's very, very difficult. And something I observed recently is even if I if I watch duathlons or triathlons or some running events, I notice that the people in the events, you know, they don't really look like athletes. And and I and I understand <laughs> it's I understand it's a participation 
sport and I think it's brilliant that they that anybody at any level or fitness or whatever you want to say participates it can only be good for their head and and everything else however um, I do feel that when you look at them they're sort of um, they're doing a really good thing by engaging with the sport but you can almost see in in how they look and how they move that they've been chained to a desk all week or a car or a whatever, uh, some sort of seated position in the way that they're, they're moving. And it, it's really got me thinking around the idea of, you know, is, can sport serve the purpose it once did if we have a population that's so sedentary that even sport is now, it's now quite a stressful event rather than um, a form of conditioning, you know? Or, or fun. I mean, this is one of the yeah. things with like the Tatarmar Indians, you know, they have running games where they're having fun for days yeah. at a time as part of a game. And we've, we've definitely lost that. One of the things that I do when I'm teaching people about um, barefoot running is we'll go out on a park and I'll, and I do things that just are designed to make them do and feel goofy. So I'll say, you know, think about being a, like little kids when they, when they start running where they, they haven't grown into their head yet. So it's like they kind of lean their head forward and then they have to catch up to their head, which they can never seem to do because they can't keep it stable. It's like, just do that. Like let your head lead the way and just kind of, you know, keep your arms flapping by their side. Don't really use your arms. Just trying to do something to make it entertaining and get people out of this mindset of trying to accomplish something and making it a, a goal oriented thing that you have to do. That's got additional tensions. Like I, I, my line is always, if you're not having fun, do something different. So you are, uh, because mm-hmm. otherwise what's the point? And you don't want to, if you're not enjoying it for the, for the sake of it itself, not even for a goal, then you're not going to continue it. I mean, sprinting is a ridiculous thing because it's not easy, but for whatever reason, um, I love the training. I find it really, really engaging. And now granted, having the competition is really helpful because it, it, it just, I like having the goal as well, but the goal alone is not enough to make me put myself through that at 58 years old. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. There was some thought that, had, that um, oh, you just said in there, the, the um, it's interesting, like someone did a, showed some, some photos of Olympic athletes from I think like the forties and fifties compared to now. And in the forties and fifties, basically all of the athletes looked relatively similar. They were all just, you know, decently fit people versus the genetic freaks we have on every end of the spectrum now that are seemingly tailored to specific sports. Like if you, if, if there was a, an Olympic female gymnast and an Olympic basketball player and they died at the same time and they were the only two fossils that anybody found in uh, 10,000 years, people would assume those were two totally different species. And it didn't used to be like that. Everyone, you know, there was, I think like a more, more fundamental level of fitness for people who engaged in sports. And now it's just gotten, you know, crazy, crazy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that wasn't a question. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let me, I want to ask you a, a fun pointed question. So I imagine that every now and then you interact with other human beings and they ask you what you do and, uh, and you start to say something and they'll say, make some comment about, um, some new padded motion controlled heel elevated shoe where they talk about the vapor flyer, you know, some other, you know, giant cushion thing. How do you talk about footwear either to, you know, people who probably aren't going to, we're asking for academic reasons versus people who are genuinely curious. I mean, how do, how do you engage in this conversation that I have on a daily basis with hundreds of people? I suppose a few things. If, if I'm talking to runners, which is, which is often what I'm doing if I do a public engagement type talk. I'll generally tell them to have the, 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 the three criteria I use are light, cheap, and um, comfortable. Because um, when I did eventually overcome 10 years of injury and run my personal best, the, the shoes I was training in were, if I wasn't running barefoot on the golf course or around the grassy park, I was, I was running in light, comfortable and cheap footwear so I, I wasted a lot of money you know for a lot of years before I knew all this stuff so I uh that's the advice I give to runners and then if someone more generally is interested in changing their footwear whether it's up or down or whatever 
I generally tend to say, well, sure, but take your time, you know, because if you if you change your load in either direction, you know, there's, there's some good evidence coming out to say that you'll have you'll have problems. And I mean, intuitively, people notice if you do circuit training for the first time in a long time, you're sore, you know. So if you, yeah. if you change anything quickly, you, you, you'll have a you'll have a problem. You know? Uh, so I'm going to play devil's advocate, or more accurately, I'm going to I'm going to pretend to be the kind of person that I have conversations with on an ongoing basis. So let's do it this way. Well, but Peter, I need arch support. I mean, my doctor told me. Well, I think it depends. I think if you if you grow up habitually barefoot, as some of the um, boys we studied in New Zealand do, then you'll probably have well developed arch and, and very strong foot muscles. In which case, you probably won't need arch support. So then you get into saying, well, are we talking about, are we looking at prevention and, and long-term rehabilitation of a foot or are we looking at symptom management? And it's not impossible that a, that a doctor would be trying to manage a particular symptom uh, using an art support. But again, you'd have to see the individual and know what the situation was and what the long-term management strategy was and I suppose what background they came from in the first place, you know? Well, and I also, I mean, clearly I need cushioning because I mean, I'm running and you, know, you put all that force on the ground. So I need a lot of cushioning. I'd probably answer that in a similar way. If you've grown up barefoot, it, it, it would seem to us that you can run just fine um, without cushioning. If you have grown up with cushioning, my own experience is that you can adapt to running and moving without cushioning. But again, um, you would need to adapt slowly, you know. Well, and I also pronate. I mean, there was a guy Flat at arch. the shoe store. Well, this guy at the shoe store, you know, he put me on a treadmill and he showed me that I pronate. So clearly I needed those anti-pronation shoes, those motion control shoes. Well, well getting prescribed anything in a shoe store is not really, isn't, you know, that's very different to the medical professional in the first example, isn't it? So, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence for the shoe store form of prescription that's not to say that there isn't evidence for biomechanical assessment and subsequent gait retraining i think there is some good evidence that that muscles start to work uh, a bit better with gait retraining and that gait retraining can be part of an overall solution but that's that's not what happens in a shoe store well then last but not least uh so look if this whole barefoot thing was so good how come we never see barefoot runners in the you know in the olympics uh i think a few things there that question is is um, it's a challenge for science and then another challenge for society in terms of we don't have loads of data yet that can show us exactly the difference in injury incidence and prevalence between barefoot and shod runners. And in the small bit of data that is there, it suggests that um, we have less plantar fasciitis and less knee injuries in the barefoot group, but we have more calf and Achilles uh, tendon strains in the, in, or sorry, the other way around, less plantar fasciitis and less knee injuries in the shod or in the barefoot group. But the barefoot runners do pick up more calf Achilles strains, which is indicative of um, transitioning to that type of stride. So until we get more clear data on that and how you manage transition, I think you'll always have kind of muddy water between people who are a bit like me, who are miraculously cured of plantar fasciitis and then other people who've jumped into it and, and strained a calf. And so you'll, you'll have that sort of muddy water there in that respect. The other thing is society in terms of, I ran for many years on a variety of public spaces on, on grass, even up, up to 20 miles barefoot at sub three hour marathon pace. Um, however, I was always conscious that, um, particularly when I was in the UK more so in, in New Zealand, it's sort of culturally acceptable to be barefoot, but, um, when I was in the UK and, and Ireland, you know, running around the park barefoot, it, you know, it's not really um, the done thing. And, and again, when I was in New Zealand in, in, in the, the equivalent of um, Tesco, um, I'm just trying to think what the US, uh, Walmart maybe, or I don't know. But, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's not a grocery store that spans the US. They have different okay. names. Including, including uh, my favorite name of any grocery store ever. In the southeast, there's a grocery store chain called Piggly Wiggly. Okay. Well, <laughs> well grocery store is a good way of summarizing them all. So, so yeah. um, in New Zealand, you can be in the grocery stores doing your shopping with no shoes on, I found, in, in Auckland. Um, whereas you couldn't do that here. So, 
I think in terms of realizing the benefit of our uh, of, of being barefoot in an in an urban modern environment, minimalist um, footwear can potentially play a role because because I feel society. I just can't imagine a society, a westernized society, whereby be, be walking around barefoot is the norm. You um, can. Actually, I can change that for you, first of all, and scene. So, but yes, you can right away. Uh, go to any beach town, anywhere on yeah, the coast. Yeah, okay, yeah. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is, this is the thing that's so funny to me, is like it's totally normal at a beach town, but as soon as you get away from the coast, that's when it suddenly becomes abnormal. And, and, and it... Um, you know, I've gotten to the point, I spend so much time barefoot. I walk into some stores and if I'm wearing shoes, they're surprised. So it's, but you're right. I mean, the societal pressure, the normative pressure to fit in is a yeah. huge piece of it un, undeniably. Um, and by the way, backing up to all your answers to my, my fake objections, um, that was, I, I applaud you for, for really landing on the science um, where it's true. We have, you know, anecdotes do not equal data, but when there's so much anecdotal information, you can't ignore it. And I hope that someday we have the, both the time and resources, financial in other words, to do the kind of longitudinal studies that would be required to, I mean, frankly, put an end to the conversation and just land where we frankly think it would land. But, you know, to your point about the, the calf and Achilles strains, um, I've written a couple of things saying that those are totally optional if you transition slowly and attentively. And if you, I have a whole theory, I may as well bring it up. I have a whole theory about neurological underpinnings for learning new movement patterns. So as an undergraduate, I did research on cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. And then I have this weird background of, you know, biofeedback and having just having a knack for picking up physical skills. I was an all American gymnast, which, you know, learning to do gymnastic skills is a very unusual thing because there's no, there's no approximation for almost any of those in the real world. There's nothing in the real world that prepares you to do a double twisting, double backflip. <laughs> so, and learning how to do something like that is, you know, flat out nuts. But anyway, my basic theory is that there's different levels of um, sort of neuroplasticity and brain function that, that put people in one of four categories. So one group of people, um, they are so unaware of what their body feels. I mean, they literally, if you ask them if they're hungry, they'll say, yeah. And you go, how do you know? Expecting they're going to say, well, I got a pit, the thing in the pit of my stomach. I feel kind of empty. And they'll just look at you and go, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm hungry. They go, but how do you know you're hungry? They go, well, I don't know. I'm hungry. It's lunchtime. Um, so some people, if you ask them to run barefoot, they can rip up their feet and they don't even know they did it because their brain map has so de-differentiated. They literally just don't feel anything. They're not, there's no connection between their feet and their brain in any meaningful way. Um, and it seems that those people just need to start just walking around barefoot, getting some stimulation, waking up that neural pathway again. The next group of people, they, um, they can tell if it hurts, but they have bad proprioceptive skills. So these are the people who will email me and say that they wore out the heel of my shoe and so the rubber needs to be changed. And I say, well, you're overstriding and heel striking because it's just physics. Friction creates abrasion. And so the only way to create that abrasion is with uh, excessive horizontal force applied to that spot. And then I'll, they'll send me a video and they are overstriding and heel striking. But I've literally had people look at videos of themselves doing that thing and then say to me, yeah, but I don't do that. <laughs> and I go, Dude, it's a video you sent me of you doing what you do. But so they need more video feedback to get in line with or get reality in line with what they're doing. And then the third group of people, um, they can tell if it hurts. They have, you know, decent proprioceptive skills and you can give them some cues to speed up the process and possibly reduce the chance of injury by suggesting things like instead of pushing off the ground with your, um, by, by plantar flexing your ankle or plantar flexing your foot, um, that you want to think about lifting your foot off the ground. So you're not putting excessive force in your calf and your Achilles and, and you, but you can use cues for that. Um, and then the fourth group of people, they're just naturals. They figured out, but their problem is they have so much fun that they get tired and that's a slow progressive thing that you don't notice. And they revert to one of those previous levels. Now, the problem with my theory is I don't have any way for having people self-assess and then know what to do to move up the chain, if you will. Any thoughts? Because I've been working on this one for a while. How to categorize existing movement strategies and sensations and then, and then how to monitor progress via intervention with those four groups, is it? Uh, that was good. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, so 
you would probably do that in the form of a, a research study where you would have certain um, physical and perhaps even psychological markers to describe the overall experience of a newly barefoot participant when they run on maybe different types of surfaces. You then collate that baseline information and then you would design an intervention and you would monitor changes and in the analysis control for which group they were categorized as. That would be sort of off the top of my head, yeah. That's really interesting. Well, of course, what's what's fascinating is that this would not only be relevant for people transitioning to barefoot running, but this could be relevant for people talk, backing up to what you're saying earlier about people who they're sitting all day, they're sedentary, and now they're going out to move, and they're still just carrying the same movement patterns through. There's some people who will do that, some people who won't do that, and and if we could identify the differences between those two groups, those cohorts, maybe there would even be a way of helping people who are running in regular shoes have better movement patterns. It's funny. I've seen a whole bunch of people lately when I'm heading out to the track who have uh, great running form and their forefoot, midfoot landers, their heel, you know, will barely touch the ground. Um, not saying your heel should stay off the ground, but I mean, that's just what they do. They're natural forefoot runners. Um, and yet they're still in big, thick padded heel, you know, elevated heel shoes. And I'm thinking why you, the way you run, you don't need that, but they still do that. And so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just perplexed by that, but suffice it to say what you just described is an interesting thing that then the magic question becomes, how do we then turn that into some sort of self-assessment so that people can figure out who they are without having to go into a research lab and then know what to do to, you know, progress because like, I'm, I'm not good at history. I'm really good at statistics and I'm really good at movement, but I'm not really good at, um, organizing my desk. So we have these natural propensities for things and people have different propensities for movement, but we don't like to think of ourselves that way, or we don't, I'll tell you the one we don't like to think of ourselves as, as a sprinter, my, my VO2 max is pretty low and I'm totally non-responsive to VO max training. So I can do long, slow distance stuff all day long and my VO2 max just does not change. I'm a VO2 max non-responder. People don't like the idea that they, that there's certain boxes that you might put them in, even though once you recognize what box you're in, it opens up a whole new world for doing the thing that you fit with instead of trying to do the thing that you don't fit. I always tried distance running repeatedly and, you know, I never understood why I couldn't do it. It made no sense to me. Um, and, you know, to your point about persistence, endurance hunters, um, I, this, this is a, a, a lightly comedic argument that I had with Dan Lieberman at Harvard, where he said, you know, we are all persistence endurance hunters and we just would stalk down our prey. I said, no, no, I'm not one of those guys. And he said, well, you just didn't train that way. I said, no, no, no. That's what all you slow people say. Um, I, I was always the fastest kid that people knew. And the difference between, you know, persistence, endurance, and sprinters, you guys would, you know, slowly chase down the gazelle. And then my guys would show up and we'd lift it up and carry it home. Because me and my friends deadlift three times our body weight and you guys can barely do push-ups. And uh, he was like, oh, maybe. <laughs> so, but anyway, the, but to the, to the point of like finding some way of identifying where you are on some kind of spectrum and how that would relate to what you might need to do to do any sort of movement better than you've been doing it, let alone well or proficiently. Um, you know, if we're going to talk about injury, I think that's kind of the holy grail is people coming to grips with figuring out who they are and what they are and what works with those two things. Well, I think two, two things. The first one is you, you do the original study then you you then look to apply it. And again, as soon as you look to apply it, you introduce the variable of the individual. So right. I think you can definitely make positive suggestions for people, but the individual is key when it comes to application. You know, science is great until until you have to apply it to the individual. Then you need to use your nuance to, to, to yeah. do that. Um, no, it can be done. You, you, you get the original data, and then you even the way I wrote an article that can be understood by the media, you, you, you do that kind of thing. And then you maybe over time develop criteria um, in other fields. You know, they've they've done that. Second thing is, if you want a real quick, fast answer as to how someone can start um, looking at these things, it's it's to get out of their head and into their body. So I think 
because we're bombarded with technology, news, information, you know, medical practitioners, diagnosis, scans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ancient wisdom that points to getting into your body. So, you know, I've had friends come barefoot running with me before and I will, um, they run with me for a while in the shoes. And when we've got about 10 minutes left and I want to introduce them to the concept, I'll get them to pop off the shoes. And they don't, they talk about things like, um, their childhood growing up on the beach and, and things that intrinsically feel good. So what I would say to anybody is, you know, take your shoes off, walk on across the grass or the sand or, or whatever, and ask yourself how it feels, you know, and if it feels terrible, then don't do it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, if you want to be really simplistic about it, if it feels yeah. all right, then do a little bit more and see how you get on. You know, that's. No, the example you gave is, is literally one of the things that I say all the time. It's like, you know, remember being a kid on a warm summer day, you go outside, you kick off your shoes, you feel the grass between your toes or the sand under your feet or the water around your ankles. And, you know, you just played for fun and you can have that experience now. I mean, that's the thing that's, I say, you can spot a barefoot runner from a hundred meters because they're smiling and it's a completely different demeanor when you're, when you're out there and, and connecting with the ground underneath you instead of just trying to get over it and get to either the end or, you know, just back in a loop. That's the, other. I think we need to have some, some better system where you could go for a run where you didn't have to make a loop. I think having that thing where you have to turn around and come back, it gets in the way of fun. We got to, we got to work on that one too. Well, it can be a challenge because a, a, lot, a lot of my later running career was dependent on um, a medium firm sand or grass uh, surface. <laughs> so there was a lot of loops. <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> well, I was, it's like, um, there's this one track that I, that I practice on where there's just a whole bunch of little kids, like three to five years old. And it is so much fun um, being out on that track because their parents are playing soccer in the, in the infield and they're literally running and they're smiling, they're giggling, they're playing. They never run in a straight line. They stop when they get tired. They start again the moment they're not tired. They have perfect form. They never seem to get out of breath. I mean, it is, it's just my favorite thing in the world to watch. And I go, that's what, that, you know, that's what we're trying to reclaim. That's what's, it, it, it's sort of a, a sad thing that running became the thing you do to get in shape instead of the thing you do for fun or to get from here to there, or, you know, it, it's become, my, my line is, it's like, it's a shame that we work out which we often do indoors, which also makes no sense, instead of having other metaphors and other language for that activity that would make it seem more engaging to begin with. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Natural movement, nature, good food, exercise, positive social connections. It's all, yeah, it's all what's kind of going down uh, at the moment. It, it's sort of a shame the, the the whole obstacle course racing and Spartan runs and all those things or color runs, things that tried to make it more fun. They had a nice, big, like really fast rise, but now they're having a really fast fall and not just because of COVID. Um, prior to COVID, they were, you know, there was a lot of struggle there. I thought that was a really wonderful way of getting people to be more active in a way that was fun and was social and, you know, did still have some competitive components and some challenge, but you didn't really need to engage with that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that something continues or emerges that continues that thread of just making it interesting and entertaining and enjoyable independent of you know the idea of working and so it's funny you mentioned uh, the obstacle course uh, type event so I'd, I'd i'd finished competitive running about almost a year when last october i did one of those for the first time and uh, it was a lot of fun and and i realized i was doing okay in it which brought the competitor back out in me and um yeah. I, I won the race, but I, I ruptured my Achilles at the finish line. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was, I was minimalist uh, when I did it, but uh, I, I hadn't been doing a lot of running for, for quite a while. And, and uh, I guess getting into your 30s, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, oh, yeah, stop so whining. I just turned 58. Cut that shit out. I've just, I've just recovered from it, um, from it now. But I, I do wonder whether, whether if I hadn't grown up in shoes and if I hadn't spent the first half of my running career in a cushioned trainer whereby my calf and Achilles was held in a shortened position, whether I might have got a bit longer out of it. I, I, I think that perhaps while my barefoot running did a lot for me and, and certainly helped an awful lot, 
I reckon I reckon the capacity of my tenon was limited to to a certain period of time, you know. Maybe, or it may just have been one of those things because you know sometimes you just step in a weird way. Your you know, so here's one for you, and and maybe this is related. I mean, not your specific situation. So I have a uh, for the sake of people who get this, I have a grade two L five S one spondylolisthesis, or the simpler way I can put it is I've got a slightly broken spine. And if you look in, at an X-ray or an MRI and look for my sciatic nerve, you can barely find it coming out of my spine. And so my doctors can't figure out how I'm running at all. Um, and I do get <laughs> this occasional symptom that I refer to as butt Tourette's, um, where it feels like someone took a vibrating electric needle and stuck it in right where my hamstring and my glute uh, hit, and then they vibrate really quickly. Um, now I'm actually getting it on the front of my hip every now and then. But anyway, point being, when I first got back into sprinting, um, and I was getting a lot of calf injuries, yeah, mostly calf injuries, what it felt like, and I think this is actually legit, is it felt like the signal for my muscles to work in the proper sequence wasn't getting to the right place in the right time. It felt like, for example, I'd land and I'm trying, I'm rather than um, my, my foot wasn't ready to be landing on the ground, even though I thought it was ready to land on the ground. So it was applying force in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that was causing some of the strains. So, um, you know, you look at Jeez, I'm remembering Tyson Gay, um, former world champion, 100-meter runner, 200-meter runner from the U.S., and there was at one time in a race where his hamstring just exploded. I mean, these are, you know, high-level athletes who just are doing the same movement pattern over and over and over, but sometimes, especially at high speed, you know, just something goes awry with the signal getting to the right place at the right time, or you step an inch in the wrong direction, and you're putting force in, you know, the wrong place. In other words, I get where you're going, but I want to suggest that in the best of all possible worlds, it's still possible to get injured. I mean, I've had tiny little tweaks in the last 10 years that maybe put me out for a week or two because I had to, because I, because especially again, I'm 58 now. So for the last 10 years, recovering just takes longer. Something that would have been a couple of days when I was your age is now a couple of weeks. Um, But by and large, I was thinking about this on the track yesterday, actually. I've been totally fearless and completely uninjured for two years. And that's um, and and the the thing before that was I had a little weird hamstring pull that un, that had that same feeling of like my spine got in the way or my compromised spine got in the way of the the signals getting to the right place at the right time. Oh well, you know it wasn't a big deal. I mean it was annoying, um, but it wasn't a big deal. So anyway, I, I guess, guess I should have my... said that that I had the uh, tendinopathy for six years prior to the rupture. So I'm well, sure yeah, you didn't need that. Things. <laughs> well, you know, but even that's an interesting thing because tendinopathy. So, um, um, have you ever had prolotherapy? Do you know about prolo? No. So, prolotherapy, they basically take a needle, um, typically a very long needle, and they, or it's um, what most people know of um, um, PRP, platelet rich plasma therapy, which is basically prolotherapy delivered by people who don't know how to do prolotherapy and they're using ultrasound instead. But it's the same basic idea. The, the plasma and the platelet part is probably hand-waving and not necessary, or that seems to be the case. But basically, you're selectively re-injuring the tendon or ligament so that it will lay down new tissue. And because things like tendinopathy, it's really, you know, there's so little blood going into the tendons, it's really hard to initiate a healing response, especially since your body isn't necessarily designed to do anything other than get you moving enough that you can get out of the way or not become food. It's certainly not designed to get you back into high performance or fighting shape. Um, and so this is an intervention that can be helpful for doing that. So yeah, tendinopathy is could definitely have been a causative factor um, that arguably could have been, could have been addressed with something um, some, some intervention that you know, might've been helpful, but yeah, that's, that's starting out in a, in a bad spot to begin with doesn't, doesn't help. Yeah. You should have opened with that, <laughs> but you know, it's funny, but even with that, like when I think about the little injuries that I've gotten, that's the part that I find most interesting is after I've, I start to feel better is how long it takes until I feel fearless until I'm willing to go all out till I'm not thinking about it any longer. Um, and, and I find that psychological phenomenon really interesting because of course it's imperceptible. It goes from like a little fear, a little less fear, a little less fear to then suddenly realizing, Oh, it's been months since I've been afraid. And, and no that's brain, no pain. Well, Oh gosh, the, no pain, no pain is the best. I mean, the idea, that's another thing. Like we came up with this idea that pain is somehow valuable which has, it's become, there's this whole, like, you know, martyrdom syndrome going along with, with, with fitness and exercise. Uh, uh, makes me so mad. 
Anyway, it's a whole other podcast. That is a whole other podcast. Well, actually, I want to leave on this on this question. Um, I have enough power. I forgot to plug in my computer. When people talk about the new Vaporfly, when that comes up in conversation, um, do you have do you have thoughts and responses about what seemingly is or isn't happening with the new thing? It's not even new of just like hyper padded shoes. I think it's definitely performance enhancing. Do you? Why? What's the me- the me- the uh, method or uh, what's the mechanism by which it does that? I think I think the data shows a clear improvement in running economy. Um, well, pause. Pa- well, pause there. So those study, the, most of the studies that I know came from Roger Crom right down the street from me, who showed an improvement in VO2 max. But after his second study, where he tried to figure out why that was happening, where he couldn't come to any conclusion, he said, "But you know, an improvement in VO2 max doesn't equate to performance." which is true because otherwise we would just measure people's VO2 max before a race and give out metals. So, so yeah, but I'm if you follow athletics, you'll see this is a significant change in performances uh, across the board. Yeah. But the question again, the question is why, if it's not an improvement in VO2 max, what would it be? Oh, well, the scientists who can speak to this better than me, but there's a couple of things that there's the foam and there's the um, carbon fiber plate and, and what they both seem to do in conjunction is a bit like um, the trouble with shoes before the Vaporfly is that you can't get the response for them because it's a timing issue. So you, you, you apply force for a certain amount of time when your foot comes in contact with the ground. So whatever, if you want to enhance performance, you've got to get something that can deform and respond quick enough. Otherwise, right. you, you lose the effect. So if you think about a, a trampoline, you know, you've got to apply a lot of force oh, yeah. for quite, quite a long time to then... Yeah to then get the restitution. So Nike seemed to have come up with something between the, as I said, I'm not really a, a shoe expert to be honest, but the, the, the foam and carbon plate thing seems to be able to give something back um, to the runner. Now, whether they, you know, if you look at them in the context of injury, that's a completely different, that's a completely <laughs> different thing. But if yeah. you, if you look at it solely in terms of performance, I think, I don't, I, I don't think you can really doubt, but there's a there's a bigger there's a bigger issue there around you know uh there's a there's a lot of issues really around um this sort of concept of technological doping whether you know if you look at the 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 swimsuits that were banned um sure. you know whether whether it represents the spirit of the sport whether someone can really have a personal best and see it as their own versus you know in you know performance enhancing technology there's a whole load of different debates around that but if you just ask the simple question of you know can this shoe change performance i I think the answer is yes i'm gonna i'm gonna um suggest a couple other possibilities that would argue that so one is i'm gonna suggest there's a significant placebo effect that people think they're going to run faster and if we use tim noak's idea of the central governor theory that your brain is basically you know shutting you down um, uh, in some, some semi or subconscious way that you're reframing some of those signals and basically expect to run faster and push through in ways that you necessarily didn't, especially if you have more people who are now suddenly wearing this shoe and you expect they're going to run faster, you're going to be a little more competitive perhaps. Suffice to say, a number of psychological components that are, that are um, at play here. Um, and then actually it was, uh, I did a, a chat with um, Jeffrey Gray from Helux. His theory is that, uh, that the additional height is effectively increasing stride length without, and the light weight is making it so that people are able to increase, keep their stride frequency, and they just get this artificial increase in stride length, which would mean that there's fewer steps per whatever, and so therefore a little more efficient and a little faster. The, the carbon fiber plate thing, Simon Bartold made a comment. He said um, it acts like a, um, what, how did he say it? He said it's a, come on, come on, come on, not a spring. Um, uh, he used another for a lever. He said it was a lever that was, you know, giving you extra spring. And I said, well, that doesn't work from the, from physics because a lever needs a fulcrum and there's no fulcrum back to your trampoline idea. The lever in that case, or the fulcrum would be everywhere. The trampoline is attached to the, the tramp bed. I think you're losing less energy from the metatarsal heads with the, with the, with the carbon, um, fiber plate. So, well, that was actually one idea that Roger Crom had was that basically on the, in the, the, the metatarsals and also just in, in the ankle, the shoe basically allowed you to not use your body as much. <laughs> so you're saving a little effort because you're not having to use your body as much. But to your point about the, the 
speed of recovery of the material, A, um, yeah, you have, to be the, you have to be the right weight and the right speed to take advantage of that. And B, of course, the foam is going to start breaking down, you know, really quickly. And then it's going to, that, that benefit will, will start to disappear um, quickly as well. But the magic question still becomes, you know, if we had someone who is a really accomplished barefoot runner at that same level, would we see the same effect? Or I'm just iffy. Uh, I'll tell you, and I'm iffy if for no other reason than no one has come up with a single testable theory about why people are running faster in that shoe. And in, in the absence of something like that, including the absence of that from Nike and then from everyone else who's now making similar shoes, it, it just something seems awry. If you can't come up with a really simple explanation that you could then test it just makes me it, it it makes me wonder if there's something else at play beyond the quote unquote technology yeah perhaps and as he as he said it's going to it's going to be massively influenced by the individual yeah anyway some someday we will have answers to this suffice it to say right now the and and look you know as you know runners professional athletes or or highly accomplished athletes uh, and I will include myself in that as a all American, a multi-sport all American. Um, we are uh, superstitious. We are afraid of 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 someone having an edge. We're simultaneously afraid of trying new things and want to try new things to get an edge. So you know, there's all these other things at play that, that like like a point you made before. You know, what a high level athlete does and what a armchair athlete does are very different things. And to try to extrapolate from a 105 pound Kenyan running 13 miles an hour for two hours to a 300 pound someone running a half marathon for the first time, having not run in 20 years, uh, it's a bit of a stretch. And yet people, that's how they sell those products is look what that guy did. Don't you want to do what that guy did, even though you're nothing like that guy? Yeah. My rant. Anyway. Um, so, I'm going to try and give you the last word, which is what thoughts do you have? I'm going to kind of come back in a way to, to something else we said before. What thoughts do you have about what it's going to take to make natural movement something that, you know, there was, we had a lot of buzz in 2009 to 2011, 2012, and it was a little, it got a little hyperbolic and, and, and really hurt things in a way because people were claiming that there were promises being made that were not being supported by the research, that weren't actually things that most of us who were running barefoot were actually saying. In fact, backing up to um, Roger Crom, he was researching VO2 max in barefoot runners compared to shod runners. And I said to him, no one ever said that you'd have better VO2 max when you're running barefoot. And besides, the people you were studying were not accomplished barefoot runners. They were people who've done some barefoot training. But anyway, point being is things got crazy. The promises got, you know, way overblown to possibly. Um, and now, you know, things have been coming back. What we're seeing in our business is just a, we've always seen this, the interest in natural movement has just continued to go up and up and up, no matter what people said was happening, where people said barefoot is dead, not what we see by any stretch of the imagination. But what do you think it's going to take to get to a, maybe a critical mass where at the very least, natural movement is seen as a really viable alternative that people should explore, let alone potentially the benchmark by which we look at things and everything else is a, an intervention off of natural. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the answer is, I don't know. Um, but and you, and what, man. What, what I will say is um, I'll show, I'll tell you what we're doing science wise. And then I'll tell oh, you good. what we're doing running injury and stuff like that. So, from the science perspective, what we're trying to do is quantify the differences in musculoskeletal function, structure and function between kids who develop with without shoes and how that impacts their movement skills um, as a result of that. And that's um, in partnership um, with a minimalist footwear company, Vivo Barefoot. So they are getting behind that project. They're, they're really interested in that. And also with Viva, what we've got is another project that looks at adults who have conditions um, already like knee osteoarthritis and plantar fasciitis to see is there any potential in um, barefoot activities or minimalist activities for the treatment of existing conditions. And the third part of the science is in adults um, who have grown up shod, 
what what sort of ways can we optimize transition to barefoot activities? So if somebody wants to take part in barefoot activities, what what's the what's the dose? What's the what's the program that goes with it? Irene Davis in, in Harvard's got a really nice foot core program, those types of things. So that's all the science. You know, how do kids develop? How do their movement skills develop? How do they change if they're in shoes, not in shoes? How can adults transition? If you already have conditions, is there any potential for this type of stuff there? That's that's what we're investigating with the science. And then when it comes to running injuries, it's a bit different because that's more my own work in terms of sort of I take the science, but I also take 18 years as a runner, my experience as a clinician, and I try and get right into the nuance, get right into the gray, pull all the behavioral psychology and everything else all into one bucket. And then I go to public forums to runners and say, at the moment, this is why I think you're getting injured. And this is what, what I think you need to do to, to not be injured. So it's, it's kind of, those are the two strands that I'm putting most of my time into at the moment, the, the, the scientific questions. And then the, having been through 12 years of injury on and off and then managed to run for three years and run some PBs, I'm trying to pull all that knowledge together, which comes from a lot of different sources um experiential science clinical etc into into a, a sort of a, a usable thing so the, the talks i do i can send you one after um oh, great. They're, they're all about uh pulling it together into the simple language to to, to be able to 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 use to back to the clinical part um what are you doing, especially on the people who are currently injured, and I'll, I'll use knee osteoarthritis in particular, what are you structuring that's different than what Isabel Sacco did in Brazil, where she just put some minimalist shoes on a bunch of elderly women with knee osteoarthritis and found that um, it went away? Well, we're doing a few things. Um, the first part is looking at what is the attitude of clinicians. <laughs> Walk that way and then find somebody if you can. Sorry, go um, ahead. We're going to try and get a sense of what clinicians think about even 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 just barefoot activities in, in, in a clinical setting in, in rehab. We're going to see what they think first, and then we're potentially going to look at changes in biomechanics and pain as a result of different footwear conditions. So that's, mm. that's where we're going with that one. And for the kids, um, uh, obviously, anyway, we can help. We're happy to help. Um, the I don't know if you've talked to Christine Pollard at um, Oregon State. She's been doing some research on kids. Um, and basically, I don't know if I'm speaking at a school when I say this. Well, I, I'll, I'll just describe the gist of what she's looking at. Kids running in a motion-controlled shoe versus barefoot versus in a pair of our shoes. And just looking at the the differences biomechanically and, um, and kinematics. And um, I, I haven't talked to her in a while to see what the latest news from the study is. But the preliminary information, let's just say, was very compelling and interesting. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Carson Olander's done a lot of nice work in that in that space yeah. as well. Yeah, some good. Well, Irene Davis, um, her line: "She was, if we just get kids living in minimalist footwear when they need footwear, in 20 years we won't be treating adults for the problems that we currently treat adults for." I, I, I tend, I hope she's right, and I have reason to think that she is. Yeah, my, my suspicion on the on what I what I observed in 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 the the kids in New Zealand would be uh, that that's definitely um, a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think um, Lorraine Muller, who was one of Arthur Lydiard's athletes, she was a world, she was an Olympic medalist in the marathon. She was, I think, I don't remember if she won Boston and New York. She was you know, a world champion uh, marathoner. She said um, she never really wore shoes to train until she came to America and got sponsorship. And she said, and that was the first time I ever got injured. And it was really interesting. Uh, Lorraine's a hoot. She's a, a dear, dear woman. Anyway, um, Peter, this has been a total, total treat. So glad that we actually finally crossed paths. We'll talk after this about more ways that we can be hopefully be helpful for you, both personally and professionally. Um, but in the meantime, um, if people want to find out more about what you've been doing um, or if they want to be helpful in some way, how can they do that? So I have um, a blog, peterfrancis.blog, and I write under the under the tab running from injury is about 50 blogs on everything you can do uh, to not be injured as a runner. Um, there's podcast interviews on there. There's a recorded talk. There's, there's all sorts of stuff there. Um, and mainly I release any of the science we do on, on Twitter. And that's just at Peter Francis 
underscore IE. And that's, that's, yeah, that's where you can get all the stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And for everyone else, thank you, obviously, or once again, uh, if you want to find out more about Peter's stuff, you know where to go. And we want to find out more about what we've been, all the other conversations we've been having with other people about natural movement. I'm still waiting to have someone who thinks that I'm completely full of it and have a, you know, knockdown drag out with them. That'll be fun. Um, but um, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find all the previous episodes. You'll find all the places you can find us on YouTube and on Facebook and on Instagram and all the places that podcasts are served. And you can leave comments and reviews and, uh, you know, do all those things you know how to do, subscribe and share, et cetera. Most importantly, also, if you have any recommendations or questions, drop me an email, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. And as always, until next time, have fun and live life feet first.